This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a really unique program. We're talking about the state of value-based care in, the, in, in Connecticut, and we're also talking about collaboration. I'm reminded of a quote from Michael Levitt who says that collaboration is the key to solving complex problems. These are two leaders that I actually had the pleasure of spending time with a couple of months ago at the Moving to Value Alliance. They had a 2022 symposium, which had some of the biggest thought leaders in the area and even on an international level. They're doing great work there in Connecticut. They're moving to value-based care. Dan, I just can't get over the the conversation we just had with, with Jeff and Lisa. Yeah, Eric, agreed. These two are excellent. And uh, Jeff has comes with more than 35 years in the health sector. He's passionate about value. He's worked in the self-insured commercial payer, large provider group space. Uh, Lisa Trumbull is the president and CEO of Southern New England Healthcare Organization, or Sone Health. They're a clinically integrated network with six hospitals and 1,700 physicians. And, and if you haven't listened to these guys before, you'll really appreciate their leadership and insights in this conversation. Let's hear from Jeff and Lisa as they talk about moving to value in Connecticut and creating a transformed healthcare ecosystem through industry collaboration. They join us this week in the Race to Value. Lisa and Jeff, welcome to the Race to Value. You know, it is just so incredible to have you both on this week. We've had a chance to collaborate, you know, over the last year or so, get to know each other. I'm just enamored by the great work that you're doing and leading the charge towards value-based care. And and of course, Lisa, welcome back. You're you're an alum to the Race to Value podcast. So it's great to have you back on the on the show as well. Yeah, it's great to be back, Eric. Really looking forward to the conversation today. Well, I thought we would begin our conversation with the Moving to Value Alliance. This is a multi-stakeholder grassroots community that's trying to fix a broken healthcare system in Connecticut. And the mission of the MTVA is to create a value-based healthcare ecosystem with the highest quality outcomes at a reasonable cost for the employers in Connecticut and their healthcare consumers. And this community is composed of individuals, practices, and organizations deeply rooted in Connecticut's healthcare environment. And I had the immense pleasure of attending the MTVA annual symposium a few months ago, and 
I was blown away with the collegial atmosphere and the very strong program content that drove in-depth peer conversation on value transformation at both the state and the national level. And when I was attending the conference, I was reminded of Michael Levitt's book, Finding Allies and Building Alliances, where he talks about the power of collaboration networks and how leaders with collaborative intelligence will drive the next human evolution and human productivity and business transformation. So I thought we could start our, our talk today by having you share with our listeners a little bit about the Moving to Value Alliance and its mission. And what were some of the takeaways and aspirational insights from, the, from that recent conference? And how can a collaborative mastermind group like this be able to leverage the power of collaboration to transform outcomes in the state? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Eric. I'll I'll uh, I'll take that one to start. So the executive group of the Moving to Value Alliance is uh, is five people, and one of those was Dr. Stephen Schutzer, who's an orthopedic surgeon. Actually, is the orthopedic surgeon of the year, uh, voted by his other orthopedic surgeons in Connecticut this year. And he is the one who really started our movement and our organization. And a group of us kind of fell in uh, for the last five and a half years, bringing in uh, multiple stakeholders, the payers, the providers, the uh, employers, Fortune 500 companies, brokers, consultants, point solutions, and what have you. And for the first four or five years, we were very much focused only on Connecticut, but we've broadened our scope and, and actually include people from everywhere across the country and now internationally as well. We had international participants in the symposium that you attended as well. It's been a really, really interesting process for us. And Governor Levitt's book really did inspire the creation and formation and directionality of the Moving to Value Alliance. As you know, Connecticut is kind of ground zero for mo many, if not most, of the BUCA pairs in the country. And it's also, I'm, I'm fond of saying, the land of frozen molasses. We have 169 towns and cities, all of which do something different. I actually served as the mayor of one of these towns and participated in, you know, trying to uh, break up the molasses uh, politically. And what we found is that the Moving to Value Alliance has really created the opportunity to have discussion between and among these stakeholders, which has been a huge problem nationally. Healthcare is opaque and balkanized, almost 19% of our uh, GDP, and people simply haven't talked to each other about how they interact and how they can do better. COVID certainly inspired the opportunity to start to think about things differently, primarily because people really didn't trust the system anymore, and it didn't really serve their needs appropriately. So this session that you attended in person really focused on what is different. And what is a better way to move into value-based healthcare? We discuss things like transparency. How does it create marketplaces? How, is it, how does it create collaboration to use innovation appropriately? How do we deal with the new expectations from healthcare consumers on the system? 
How do we deal with the great resignation in the new Consolidated Appropriation Act requirements, uh, fiduciary responsibility of employers and transparency, and the movement toward transparency and health system direct-to-employer initiatives as well. So these are some of the things that came out of the latest conference, which were really exciting. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of these initiatives and how they've directly affected Connecticut's move to value. Yeah, I, I would add to that. Eric, you know a little bit about my background, having spent the majority of my career in Massachusetts, a state that's pretty innovative and well on its way down the value pathway. And then taking this position with a Southern New England Healthcare Organization in January of 2020 and you know, moving into the state of Connecticut for two states that share a border, they couldn't be completely different in their approach to healthcare and the degree of innovation or stagnation uh, that occurs between the two of them. And uh, coming in early, I was introduced to Jeff and found him to be a breath of fresh air, as well as the Moving to Value Alliance because it created a forum for those of us that really believe that value is the right direction for us to go with the healthcare industry and breaking away from the traditional structures of fee-for-service and looking for more clinical integration and innovation and relationships and partnerships and alliances in a way that we all need recognize as needed in order to care for patients in our community. Yet our, we're prevented by regulatory structures and you know, historical financing systems that really prevent all of us from being able to interact and do the right thing. So the Moving to Value Alliance gives us this forum to talk about it in a way that doesn't create problems for everybody, but to share experiences and free up some of the clay in our brains to think about how to do things better and different. Lisa and Jeff, I'd love to get your perspective on consolidation trends. If we could start with this question, consolidation trends with the industry and how that contributes to a dysfunctional competitive landscape. You know, there are industry experts that are predicting that the financial effects of the pandemic will drive more consolidation between hospitals and physician practices, as many of those will seek refuge in the arms of the, their competitors' balance sheets. And they'll, this will trigger a new wave of horizontal and vertical consolidation. And right now, there's an especially active move by health systems, payers, and PE-backed physician aggregators to consolidate primary care providers which is a particular challenge in some markets. At a national level, we're seeing how all this consolidation can drive up costs in many of the investment transactions that have taken place. And at the state level, we saw how Hartford Healthcare was involved in a lawsuit over attempted monopolization where it was stated that, quote, the primary driver of premium increases is consolidation of the relevant hospital market, end of quote. So should we be concerned about the impacts of consolidation on the value movement? And for these gigantic consolidated incumbents in the healthcare industry, how are they going to be able to pivot, especially if they're not reaching successive tipping points in value already? And what are your thoughts, finally, about the advent of the new era of co-opetition within value-based care, where competitors can find ways to collaborate within a local market ecosystem by sharing data and uniting together to jointly support population health outcomes, especially in underserved and marginalized communities. It is inevitable that after the pandemic, in particular with hospital systems, 
that consolidation would accelerate. And we know from looking at history that to date, all the consolidation that's occurred and resulted in large health systems hasn't produced any improvements, material improvements in cost or quality. And so we, we all need to be concerned about that. But I, but I do feel like it's inevitable because you're looking at hospitals in particular where over the last two years, a significant portion of their business evaporated or was transitioned out of a hospital setting into an outpatient setting or a different setting. And they're dealing with escalating costs, declining reimbursements, pressure on reduction in fee-for-service payments. And most of them don't have a value-based strategy to augment that impact. So rather than looking at transformation of their system to something different than the typical bricks and mortar hospital, they're looking at continued consolidation and aggregation as an answer to that problem. And, and I think that's short-sighted because this, this scenario is not going to get any better for hospital systems. It's going to continue to deteriorate. I think the pandemic opened up the doors for innovation in a way that none of us anticipated. So in almost every segment of healthcare, there is something new to be gained. There are new offerings, new approaches to care, new partnerships, new innovations that basically eat away at the traditional way that healthcare has been delivered in a, in a hospital setting, but also in a physician practice setting. So I feel like we need to pay attention to this and we need our hospital systems to recognize that they need to be something different. Now on the physician side, I, I do get concerned about aggregation or vertical integration of providers within a payer-based structure or you know, large structures that really take away the ability for physicians uh, to maintain their decision-making capabilities and uh, to avoid pressures of being owned by an insurance company. I think all of us fear that as probably one of the areas where uh, a lot of damage could be done. You know, I feel that there are a number of opportunities for physicians to collaborate, independent, employed, and others in entities like SOAN, a clinically integrated network, where we don't own providers. We have employed providers. We have independent providers. We have hospitals. Uh, we have, you know, urgent care centers and other types of providers in our network. Uh, but our primary goal isn't to own all of them. It's, it's to drive improvements in value-based care and in population health and resulting in improved quality and uh, you know, reduced costs over time. I think that that's a reasonable alternative to be considered because it allows the independence of their decision-making around how they choose to practice medicine, how they want to staff their practices and how hospitals may want to choose and strategically realign themselves with the direction that healthcare is going today. So it, it, it's an exciting time actually in healthcare because I've never seen so much change in the as I've seen in the last couple of years. And I'm very hopeful that we'll come out of this moving more strongly in the direction of value-based care. So Dan, I'm going to answer the question a little differently. I really liked uh, Lisa's answer and she helped me to answer this a, a little bit differently. I've been involved in healthcare for 37 years particularly in the commercial markets. And uh, I'll tell you, I've never seen so many things change in such a short period of time. And as I indicated on the first question, COVID really did inspire some change. Obviously, huge investment and in innovation and things of that nature. 
but changes in attitudes, people's attitudes relative to their expectations for healthcare. I mean, you brought up health equity for an example. How do we give everyone access to healthcare? And a big thing that has happened since March when COVID hit and people were hiding in their homes and realized that they didn't have access to their providers or definitive care or adequate virtual care is that they have suddenly demanded more. So yeah, there's been tremendous hospital consolidation and health system consolidation, payer consolidation and things of this nature, but innovation is here and now in becoming part of the solution. Many point solutions have tried to come into employers directly. It's failed. But many provider groups, uh, like Lisa's own organization, and she can speak to this a little bit more, have hybridized. They have brought in technologies and point solutions that give people access 24-7 to the things that they want and need, be it digital therapeutics or behavioral health care or other things that they want, care at home hospital at home, and suddenly the Leviathans, these big consolidated hospital and health systems, are realizing that expectations have changed. Today, there's an announcement from Mass General Hospital that they're doubling down on their investment for hospital at home care, and that they're increasing staff for this directly. Employers are finding that their biggest costs, the biggest trend factors, are obviously for drugs, but inpatient and outpatient care as well. And they're looking to provide different solutions to members directly that don't require bricks and mortar. The system is changing dramatically around us. We're seeing that happen. Fortune 500 companies are demanding change. And we see it even in the states operating around the country. Here in Connecticut, the largest purchaser in the state of Connecticut is the state of Connecticut. They have the most employees. They have moved to a value rubric. They've been members of our Moving to Value Alliance along the way. They are using APM strategies and advanced primary care that's attributed to their membership as well. And what are we seeing around us from the RAND Hospital transparency data? We see huge variation in cost and quality between systems. And quite frankly, these big consolidated health systems tend to be much more expensive and have had in the past lower quality as well. So there's a realization, if you will, from purchasers that they can purchase things directly in that there is a competitive marketplace suddenly happening around us that hasn't existed in the past. Let's talk now more about the dysfunctional health benefits market and the opportunity for employer alliances. It just seems like there's such a need right now for 
employer-sponsored health insurance solutions in the marketplace. And, you know, we have a, a market that covers 157 million Americans. It's dysfunctional and it's ineffective in producing value. It's been stated that poor health costs employers $530 billion on top of the $880 billion that they already spend on premium dollars. And then you have employees that it's been calculated spend upwards of a million dollars over the course of their lifetime on healthcare, which includes the foregone wages that they would have earned if health insurance wasn't so astronomically expensive. And commercial insurance costs have gone up four times the rate of other benchmark goods and services. And there's this universal recognition by employers that free market forces do not support pricing competition to improve value. So I just wanted to ask you both, what is the human impact and effects of all this financial toxicity? And are employers now the sleeping giants that are going to awaken to accelerate this move to value by recognizing both this economic and moral imperative around value-based healthcare? And how are the large self-insurers going to come together to collaborate in a meaningful way to advance the aims of a reimagined healthcare system that's ultimately going to be accountable for cost and outcomes? Eric, I think this is a great question. The idea that we actually have a free market when it comes to health insurance, I think is an oxymoron. We have several national players who are fixated in their, their singular approaches to how they choose to contract how they think they interpret value that really doesn't result in any value proposition for the employers. It just perpetuates growth in profit margins and shareholder returns. And uh, what that's doing and the human impact of that is that financially toxic, but it's also creating huge, huge inequities and disparities in the populations that we serve, you know, between the haves and the have-nots with insurance, uh, those that can afford great coverage or can't afford great coverage, have differences in health outcomes. And this is really central to the issue with our ability to change how we deliver care to the populations that we serve. If we really believe in health equity, then we really need to look at our insurance market. But that's a huge change. In, in the meantime, finding ways to connect the purchasers of health insurance, which is by and large, employers today in Medicare, with those that actually provide health insurance, the providers, and reduction of the influence of a middleman concept allows the opportunity to have a conversation with employers about the issues they're facing with their employee population, the prevalence of disease, where they live, all the issues that we all talk about in terms of disparities and health equity. And I think that that is probably the most innovative direction to go at this point. I believe that at the end of this calendar year, when employers see the double-digit premium increases they're going to face in 23, there's going to be an outcry. It's, it's not sustainable. And then we factor in the Consolidated Appropriations Act, where employers will now have an understanding of you know, what the commissions are for the brokers that they're working with. And and basically the costs all the way down the food chain and where additional money is being taken to you know, buttress up the fee-for-service structure that we call our healthcare system. And they're going to be looking for different solutions. And I believe one of those solutions is a direct-to-employer solution that connects the providers of healthcare with those that are purchasing the healthcare in the local market, which is important. 
and will allow the ability for providers and employers to drive substantial changes and improvements for their, their population. We're experiencing this in Connecticut today in our own direct-to-employer program with Centivo, and we've talked about this in the past, Eric. Our experience with a couple of our employers that are in our program are substantial, 35% decreases in cost of care, 24, 25% increases in use of primary care, 25% reduction in avoidable ED utilization, and the list goes on and on in terms of the outcomes uh, that, and, and this has resulted in pay increases to the employees for these employers because their deductibles are reduced, their premiums are reduced, and the end result is, is just phenomenal and better than what can be achieved in the existing insurance structure that we have today. So my answer to the question is, is a little bit different. Lisa has shown huge leadership in this marketplace with the organization that she represents in creating a hybrid approach that is directly relevant to consumers, gives them the access that we're talking about, and can clinically integrate to service lines that are lower cost and higher quality for employers. And she's created this direct employer strategy, which is really working quite nicely, even involves for the hospital system and so on, a broker advisory board to talk about the incremental elements of healthcare financing that are necessary. The problem has been in the past that the brokers and consultants and advisors that purchasers use uh, to give them advice on how to fund their plans and how to treat their problems have really been conflicted by the compensation that comes from the big carriers. Quite frankly, they make more money if it costs more. And uh, with all the M&A that has occurred with brokerages around the country, the roll-up of brokerages has favored even more compensation for brokers for placing their groups with specific carriers, or retaining business with those carriers as well. CAA is laying that information out there transparently. So my prediction is a little bit different than leases. Not only will purchasers in are they becoming astounded by increases in costs and trend and things of this nature, but we are already seeing second order effects from the requirements of CAA relative to the disclosure of broker compensation in the marketplace. Pretty astounding. And certain brokerages around the country are taking advantage of this to go in and say, we will take risk with you, employer. We will help you to solve your problems. We will do only fee-based work with you so that we can help you to solve your specific problem list on variation, on outcomes, and things of that nature. There are brokerages out there like the Health Rosetta organization that are very focused on this type of approach um, in the marketplace. Things are really changing. The direct-to-employer strategy is a good strategy, but herein lies the problem. The purchaser still needs a truth source, an agent, somebody that is on their side that can give them objective advice on what they should be doing. 
we really feel that that person or personage or role has yet to be revealed in the marketplace. And I will tell you, having worked with employers of all sizes, the most recent a group with over 800,000 employees, employers don't know how to take agency over their plans. Even though they have this fiduciary responsibility, they don't know how to take the data, whether it's transparency or otherwise, and put it to work with direct contracting. We are seeing this unfold before our eyes. And quite frankly, some of the tools that are developing in the marketplace, like the Turquoise Health tool and the Sage Transparency tool, are tools that will help employers, but it's really hard for them to be the change makers because they're really not sure how to act on this data. I'd like to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, Jeff. Uh, you said Connecticut has historically been the land of frozen molasses when it comes to value-based care. There are 169 towns and cities doing things very differently. And you've got this dynamic where smaller businesses make up 97% of the companies in Connecticut, and they're experiencing acute impacts from higher healthcare costs. You've been and paying between 8 and 18% more than large companies for the same health insurance policies. And there's a billion dollar on employer spend with the BUCAs that's been increasing and the state's seen a mass wave of primary care consolidation with Optum coming in and buying practices. And all of these things relate to what you've been talking about. I'd like you to further describe the, the healthcare landscape for our listeners. And what are some of the bright spots for multi-stakeholder collaboration to improve patient care and overall healthcare value? And are there opportunities for rising upstarts that are focused on advanced primary care or technology innovation to disrupt the marketplace by finding creative and scalable ways to partner with employers and providers for advancing value? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Dan, and um, I'm glad you asked it. A couple of years ago, we had the opportunity to work with the Office of Health Strategy on this very question. And uh, I'll tell you, a, a big problem related to primary care is that, one, there's not enough of them, and it's not used enough, and there's not enough investment in primary care. If you looked Two years ago, the Primary Care Collaborative posts a study every year that showed Connecticut as dead last with investment in the commercial healthcare marketplace for primary care, which leads to fragmentation, lack of continuity of care, uh, clinical integration, and things of this nature. The state, uh, even some of the carriers, and, and particularly a number of provider groups have really focused on this. The state of Connecticut Employee Health Plan's value-based solution for employees actually brought together primary care uh, to be assigned to its members. And the state is now focusing as uh, part of its uh, benchmark initiative on investment in primary care uh, and what have you. We have found, though, and this is a big problem across the country, that our legislators really don't understand the relationships related to cost and quality in the provider supply chain, whether it's health system pricing or the use of primary care or integration and things of this nature. We just had last week the Buca carriers submit their fully insured rate increases to the state 
And immediately we saw legislators and other public officials throw up their arms and basically scream and yell about these uh, increases that are coming. But they really don't think about their role, whether it's state mandates or the fact that there is huge variation in cost and quality between our health systems, and there's no accountability for that at all. The bright spots are that we're seeing organizations like SOAN, like Lisa's organization, who are moving into value-based arrangements, who are pushing value-based in the state, even with Optum's Energy uh, Pro Health uh, being an aspect of that, and are working together, and Lisa can certainly speak to this, to push the value-based solutions into the marketplace. And in fact, even lobby our legislators and the state about what value-based healthcare should look like. What is an advanced primary care paradigm? What does it look like? We ourselves, meaning my own organization, has been working with advanced primary care organizations uh, around the country. I'll give you one, uh, Vera Whole Health, to come into this marketplace, which they are, to contribute that innovation and to give more primary care resources to the populations that really need them and and really need this care transformation and the integrated practice units that are part of that advanced primary care paradigm. Yeah, I I would just add a little bit to the advanced primary care conversation. Uh, I agree with everything that that Jeff has said. I I think that there's there's certainly a lot of investment in this area and a lot of uh, venture capital and private equity dollars that are being introduced to the market that are targeted at advanced primary care models. The majority are targeted at addressing the Medicare population, which leaves a big gap for commercial and Medicaid populations. But I I think the one thing that's ignored in a lot of these models is that providing access and having virtual primary care and advanced primary care virtually is great for, I would say, a good portion of what can be done. But at some point, the patient needs to be touched. At some point, there needs to be testing that's done. There needs to be connection to the healthcare system that is local in the market where the patient needs to be cared for. And there needs to be relationships and partnerships to make that all work. I I think we have a lot more to learn about the models that are out there today. They're relatively young. The success is mixed. And it'll be interesting to see what the long-term sustainability of these models will look like five, 10 years down the road. Now, do I believe that they are instrumental in our ability to provide change and greater access and help and assistance in reducing inequities and disparities? Absolutely. I think we need to be providing care in any way that the consumer desires it. Uh, if that means that it's virtual, then so be it. If it means that you know, they want to be seen in a primary care practice or a specialty practice, or you know, they want to be seen in their home, then we need to be able to facilitate that type of access in order to make sure that all of the citizens in our community can get the care that's needed at the time that they need it, which what is driving in our market, the in particular for SOAN, the need to feel like we need partnerships like the Vera Healths and the Dispatch Healths and Concert Healths that can provide greater access to our population almost immediately without us feeling the need that we have to buy it 
or build it or create it or recruit for it in the marketplace. And I think that that's where a lot of health systems actually fail. Uh, they feel like the only way that they can do this is if they build it, right? And, and that they provide it and they recognize that it's not a core competency that they can perform well and it ends up failing in the long run. And you can't possibly provide the access because it's not your core business. So you don't pay attention to it in the same way. And I think a good example is as the Chartist report on virtual care that virtual care in an existing health system is more difficult than if you're going to try to provide virtual care and you started as a virtual care company, right? Because you're trying to layer on new technology, new structure onto an old infrastructure. But I, what I loved about this in their report is that it results in COO, which is a costly old organization. We need to think differently about how all this is provided, but at the same time, we can't lose sight of the fact that healthcare is local. You, you can't escape that. The, the communities that have needs and have disparities are local, that, that requires local resources to bring to bear to resolve those issues. Any entity that feels like it, it can do this without having the local connection, I don't think has a long-term sustainability in their future. I wanted to take our conversation to another aspect of the value movement, and I know Connecticut is really thinking a lot about value-based insurance design. Connecticut even received a test grant award from CMMI to set up a glide path for providers to transition from a P4P payment program to a shared savings model. And I know the state has an ultimate goal within its innovation plan to have upwards of 90% of the state's population being treated by a clinician who's responsible for quality and cost of care. And as part of that strategy, the state's trying to align all of the payers in the state to have a common set of measures that span all the domains of quality, care experience, health equity, and cost. And payers and providers would be free to negotiate the terms of the performance payments in the degree to which they prefer to share in savings and risk. So I wanted to see if you both could describe how the self-insured and fully insured employers in the state are coming together to build a value-based insurance design consortium to really tackle you know, some of these important aspects of benefit design. And how are providers responding to the aims of VBID where there's changing reimbursement on low value and high value care? Do you see VBID working in a scenario where we need the pricing transparency for the health plan members to make the value-minded choices. Is that going to happen in, in a scenario and divert patients away from a lot of the procedural intensity uh, that we often see in, in the current model? Yeah, so we were really involved in the state's initial VBID initiative where they hired a consultancy to come in and uh, we contributed employer groups to this project and it had the project has had what i will call and i'll use i'll use my political hat for a second good intentions and as my mother who's still living is fond of saying uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions so unfortunately in my mind even though intuitively vbid is a good idea we know Dr. Mark Fendrick uh, at Michigan, who leads the initiative, and have really enjoyed a lot of it, of his content and share it with employers. This is a really, really difficult concept 
for employers to understand. And unfortunately, brokers and consultants really have not adopted this methodology to help influence employers in the marketplace. There are some exceptions that are uh, jumbo companies, Fortune 500 companies that have built in some VBID components to their plan design purposefully. They may be carrying stop loss, and these are things that uh, remove stop loss hits or accumulators and uh, things of this nature. But the the VBID thing is very difficult for people to comprehend, certainly employees, employers. And from a provider point of view, it's very difficult for them to comprehend it as well. There's also a problem from the payer point of view, because if you've seen one payer, you've seen one payer. The payers have their own characteristics for quality that don't necessarily comport with the state's own vision of what the quality component should be. And if they can't be included in that mix for assessment, it screws things up. The other thing we've got a problem with here in Connecticut is that our all payers claims database has had very little participation from purchasers because of some dysfunction over about the 20-year period. And, And also, we just don't have that transparency data that we need to make this functional. Add one more component into the answer is that health premiums are very, very expensive in this state. Some of the public health plans are north of $37,000 a year for a family premium gross. Uh, I've seen a premium north of $40,000, which means that these employers in many circumstances are using high deductible health plans as their primary offerings to their employees, and VBID simply doesn't function as well in these environments. Yeah, I I agree, Jeff, and Eric, I'd take it from a a different perspective from the provider point of view. If we think back to an earlier part of our conversation around health equity and disparities, and in my comment around how the insurance uh, industry drives a lot of this, then VBIT is an example, as Jeff said, a good intention that really didn't come to fruition because there wasn't any skin in the game or teeth in, in the effort to drive change with the insurance industry in the state. As a result, providers have, in our value-based arrangements, look, we have, just to give you a sense of scope here, we have 110 contracts. But I'd say you know, a good portion of them have some form of alternative payment aspect to it. Maybe not all full risk, but you know, everything from P for P to you know, upside only. And we have something like 500 quality metrics that we measure. And many of them are similar, uh, but they have variations to them because you know, each insurance plan wants to add their tweak to how we measure you know, this, that, or the other thing related to the populations that we're serving. And when we look at the way that we deliver care patient population, our doctors know what is good diabetes care. You know, there's plenty of published evidence around what the right things are to do, yet we still see variation in how to measure diabetes. And if we have variation in the measurement, we have variation in the outcomes. 
And if, if we can't figure this out at the state level, how to normalize this so that it's easier for providers to provide this type of care and be measured and rewarded or not on the outcomes associated with it, then we are not going to have the level of uptake in value-based care that we need to have substantial change in our market. And these are very difficult conversations to have with, with payers because they, in, in particular in Connecticut, most of them are national payers. They have their national model, they have their national measurement, and, and they don't want to vary from that because it's very difficult for them to deal with the variation within, within their structure. Now, coming from Massachusetts, Massachusetts with the Health Policy Commission took this head on and established requirements for the payer community to normalize this. It, it's not perfect. It's not 100% where we need it to be, but it's substantially better than what we're dealing with in Connecticut. And I think if we want to really get to a value-based design, insurance design that works, then we have to cross this bridge of each individual segment within the insurance industry, measuring things and applying the standards of the value-based program in different ways. And you know, the last thing I would say about this, and, and this is just this is Lisa's point of view on, on the world. I, yeah, I sit in an entity that is provider-based, and I hear a lot from the industry around how all the woes in our industry are driven by providers. It's all the providers and their fee-for-service, you know, their love for fee-for-service and so forth, when it couldn't be now further from the truth when you look at the economics uh, within the provider part of our industry and the losses that are being consumed and the level of pressure to move into value-based arrangements. And yet we aren't targeting other aspects of the industry that are pulling down billions of dollars out of the system, away from patients and away from being able to provide the right care to eliminate disparities and inequities in our system. And you know, that, that falls into two parts of our delivery system, the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. And I find it personally aggravating to sit here and see that when I know that I can't get my patients what they need to take care of their diabetes on a daily basis because of the way the insurance is structured. Lisa, I love how you just jump to the heart of things and, and see it so clearly. And, and I, I want to take what you just mentioned about the pharmaceutical side of things and shift the conversation that way. And, you know, employers now devote about 20% of their health plans total spend to drugs. And for many employers, that figure can be as high as 30% or more. And the prescription drug supply chain is intentionally complex, it's opaque, and it renders it inscrutable to all but the small group of professionals that are long seasoned in that niche. Even though it's well known to be highly wasteful, few organizational purchasers have been able to implement tactics that force greater efficiencies in this part of healthcare. The top three PBMs, Express Script, CVS, and Optum RX, control some 75% of the US market. And the top PBMs have also come to generate higher revenues and profits than major insurers. These PBMs make twice the amount of revenue of those making the drugs and four times the revenue as those paying for the drugs, but they offer little to no value. Uh, will PBMs ever be able to partner with employers through transparency instead of obfuscation? And is collaboration for mutual benefit even possible here? Or will this always be a one-sided transaction where employers and members always come out on the losing end? Dan, this is a really good question. I'm obsessed 
with pharmacy. So I'd love to give you a, a response to this. And Eric knows at our symposium that we actually let off our symposium this year, our Thursday night dinner that I, I moderated the session was on pharmacy specifically. It is such an important area to discuss, primarily because for most every employer, the pharma category has the highest trend factor, growth of inflation as a category of any healthcare cost category that the employer has. So this is something that C-suite is directly focused on. More importantly, we know now that specialty um, is the big thing. In specialty drugs, by the way, about 51% now or 52% of specialty is on the med pharmacy side. So it may not even touch the PBM side. So this is pharma in general. The first question, uh, that I'd like to answer is that, yes, I think that there are now opportunities that large employers, that payers are embracing with specific companies out there in the marketplace. We had the CEO of Capital RX or CapRx at our uh, Thursday night dinner. They offer a really interesting approach in the marketplace that returns all of the revenue back to employers directly. All this middleman revenue, all of this rebate, they charge for a transactional fee. We're starting to see these PBM and PBA options become available to employers in the marketplace to return the value to employers and their members in the marketplace. They use a deflationary index for pricing, the NADAC pricing index or benchmark to get rid of that inflationary factor as well. So the answer is yes, we are starting to see these solutions in the marketplace. And my guess or prediction, if you will, with the new CAA reporting requirements specific to PBMs and pharmacy, once employers see what they have been paying to the middlemen for costs associated with the distribution of drugs, that this will accelerate the business case for these transparent PBMs and PBAs in the marketplace. That does not solve the other 51% of specialty, which is on the med pharmacy side, where we have health systems, hospital systems on J codes for infusion of oncologics and Remicades and things of this nature that are buying these drugs at 340B pricing at wholesale, marking them up routinely at 700% and adding $50,000 facility charges to these. So simply stated, employers now can jump in and there are opportunities to do site of administration for med pharmacy that will cut those costs uh, in half. I feel that we have solutions in the marketplace that employers will see shortly and that will solve these problems and, and really bring these issues uh, to the fore related to pharmacy. Jeff and I have, have danced around this pharmacy thing for a while and 
you know, I've been in healthcare for my entire career, and every time I think I understand pharmacy, I recognize how little I actually understand pharmacy. And I'm in the industry. So imagine being an employer or a patient uh, trying to figure out why there is such variation around the purchase of something simple like hydrochlorothiazide for high blood pressure. How can it be produced at pennies and yet cost multiples of that and, and vary by CVS, Walgreens, Costco, or Cigna, United, Aetna, Medicare, how can we have such variation for a, a drug that is known? It's not a particularly sexy or complicated drug. We're not talking about biosimilars and all of that. It's a very basic drug. It's understood what the unit cost is, yet the unit cost is varies, as Jeff said, by percentages that are just extraordinary. And that's every drug that is marketed today. And at every point across the chain, from the time the drug is produced to the time it reaches a patient, there's an incremental take on that drug or a markup on that drug that goes to someone or some other middleman, middle person, middle entity in this process that's extraordinary and bankrupting our health and health industry. And it's bankrupting the Medicare program. And we really need to figure this out. And, and figure out you know, how we can use creative ways like CapRx or others uh, to get around this constant markup process that doesn't add any value to the process. Well, those are, those are some outstanding points and you know, that's such an important area. And there's another aspect of uh, value-based care that I wanted to engage you both on, and that's this opportunity we have for enabling technologies and consumerism. I mean, we're still early on in the value movement in terms of re-architecting healthcare towards something that is more consumer-oriented, and there's countless forces in play due to the technology that's developed over the last dozen years from mobile phones, the cloud, AI, and so much more. And it seems that no industry can evade those forces, even healthcare. However, you know, healthcare is just such a heavily regulated, massively subsidized industry, and it has all of these structural distortions that consumerism doesn't always seem to drive change like it does in other industries. And in this era of social media and digital everything, we demand that every other industry serves consumers better, but consumers haven't demanded that of healthcare in the in years past. Can you both discuss the impact that you see with consumer-facing technologies in healthcare and how that may ultimately redefine the service experience and improve patient-provider collaboration and promote account- accountability for individual health? And on the policy side, do you think there's anything maybe the federal government can do to incentivize transformation where the industry can better treat patients as consumers by integrating virtual care, behavioral health, patient engagement technologies into their whole person care platforms? Eric, this is an interesting conversation. I'm really excited about this this aspect of healthcare transformation. I think the one thing that we don't really understand at this point is how to measure it. I can say I I know, but I don't know definitively that it's having an impact on where care is being driven, who is seeing our patients, and how our patients are actually accessing care. The problem is is it's not measured anywhere in a material way. But I know just myself in terms of access to, uh, to care, I have a primary care provider. 
you know, I've used MD Live. I've, I've used a virtual provider that is not my own primary care provider. I've used, you know, urgent care clinics that aren't associated with my primary care provider because they're convenient. So we know that they're, they're, Consumers are accessing care in a different way, and they're accessing care using technology and transformative uh, connections to care, various apps and things like that. But but there's no real way to, to, to track that. But what I do see is that we're seeing declines in care in certain settings, right? Hospitals are seeing declines in their settings. Our primary care providers, I'm sure, insist that they see their patients every time and and until we had a recent conversation with our network around uh, around this, they weren't really aware that regardless of how much they think they're actually seeing their patients, how much care their patients are actually getting outside of their, their primary care office. And it, it's really important for us to be able to make those connections so that we can improve care, because I think it has the potential to fragment care even further. Uh, what we need is stronger connections to primary care and if, if technology is going to drive that and that's going to be used, then we need to leverage the technology to make sure that there's connections to primary care so that optimal care can be delivered. Otherwise, what we're going to end up with just more care, in some cases, unnecessary care being delivered that's just going to add more cost and waste to the system. Federally, I don't, I don't know that there's anything that can be legislated in this area. I, I feel like with other industries, our industry is ripe for transformation. I'm pretty sure our populations are fed up with the cost increases. Our employers are fed up with the cost increases. And that opens the window for transformation, other platforms to be brought into the market. So I think we're very early in this. And I think it will evolve over the next decade or so. I really like this question. And I'm optimistic about the value of innovation relative to healthcare and outcomes and value-based healthcare in general, and have really thought about this uh, quite a bit. We talked about vertical integration earlier. We look at, you know, CVS minute clinics and giving access to care and things of that nature. I have two kids, one, one's a cop and one's a teacher, and they have very busy lives. And they'll tell you they will not wait in a waiting room for a provider any longer, that they like they like the accessibility of a, a CVS Minute Clinic or even a virtual visit. I think these things are really important. However, as Lisa was saying, we have to think of the second order effects. What are the outcomes? What is the longitudinal experience here? And Eric, you may recall that I moderated a panel at our symposium on cancer care. I'm a cancer survivor and it's very personal to me. And having been in healthcare for so long, we know that for most every employer, cancer is either the number one or number two cost category. And it might also astonish you that for persons diagnosed with cancer, about 73% of them never get a second opinion. And they never get good access to what we would call the most advanced standards of care for the particular type of cancer that they have. So I've, I've been working on a project with some oncologists, some AI companies, some genomic companies and what have you that would increase access to CarePass 
via innovation, meaning a primary care physician would have their patient and would be able to direct the patient versus innovation via technologies, uh, point solutions to the correct diagnostic, genomic diagnostic, which would then direct them to care paths that would be appropriate to their cancer and give them democratized access to clinical trial for their particular cancer so that we would increase the quality of the outcome for everyone. Even if they were in a rural community in Northern Maine or in an urban desert, that there would be a care path that would be built with the providers and using innovation to give access to the correct diagnostic for the best outcome. So I'm really optimistic about the future of that. These things are being built as we speak. Uh, Precision medicine got us to the vaccines that we have for COVID and other things. I don't believe, though, that federal incentives will do anything right now, simply because in talking to all the stakeholders in healthcare, people don't trust the federal government right now, specifically as it relates to COVID. doesn't matter what camp you're in. There's a general distrust. I think that this is happening organically in the marketplace and that we'll see the benefits of this shortly. Well, as we're talking about innovation and value, I wanted to also bring up a really important innovation, and that's bundled payments. On the self-funded side, I mean, bundled payments can cut costs for several surgery types by more than 10% with those savings passed on to employers and patients. There was a, a recent study I was looking at in health affairs, and they showed that joint replacements, spinal fusion, and GI surgeries were on average of like $4,229 less when providers charge a set price compared to prior payment models. And employers are receiving about 85% of those savings, which is like $3,500 per episode or a you know nearly a 10% relative decrease while patients are paying about $500 less per episode, which is like a 28% relative decrease after their cost-sharing oblig- obligations are, are waived. The cost savings impacts of this particular innovation seems to increase over time and where care quality improves or remains the same. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of the, the bundle payment innovation that's happening on the commercial side being modeled after the bundle payment for care improvement program, which CMS has had in place for the last few years. And that they've had a modicum of success in that program. I think, you know, saving upwards of 900 million and between models two and three, Uh, So I wanted to just see if you both can provide your perspective maybe on what's coming next with bundled payments. I mean, the data seems to be pretty irrefutable at this point that there's a value proposition in play with these bundles and there's a financial incentive to better coordinate care. I mean, how should hospitals and physician groups be thinking about bundles and their financial strategy and operations planning as well? Oh, Eric, give me a chance to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff and I have gone back and forth on this and, and, you know, there's no question that, that there are certain services that lend themselves to being bundled, Uh, basically, you know, procedural type of episodes or or types of care, you know, orthopedics being a good example. And, you know, when you look at CMS and CMMI, I think CMMI recently is re-looking at all their value-based programs and has come to the conclusion that when bundles are 
are put in place in an organization that's also uh, has a population health focus, it's really hard to determine what's actually driven the savings for a particular patient. Now, let's talk about bundles for an employer, right? There is no question that a bundle for you know a total knee can significantly reduce the variation in cost for an employer from provider A to provider B because there are guarantees, warranties on you know what the episode is, what the cost is, and there are adverse events that occur in the course of the the care that doesn't become part of the employer's responsibility as it is in today in an unbundled way. So I think from that perspective, it has a lot of value. However, it also has, it, it lends itself to the perception of the, of, you know, being like the savior for all the health insurance woes for an employee population, when that couldn't be further from the truth. We need to recognize that when you're insuring a population, you're insuring the total care for the population. And while MSK, as an example, may be a big portion of the care, if you're not paying attention to the rest of the care that's being delivered, you, yeah, you could save millions on your orthopedic bundles while driving up costs for everything else because uh, you're not paying attention to the whole person care that's required for every one of your employees that goes beyond you know, the fact that they need a total knee done. They may also have diabetes. They may have hypertension, they may have kidney disease. And I, I don't think that you can look at it in isolation of providing care in its entirety to a population. Now, the last thing I would say on bundles, I don't feel like the chronic condition bundles produce the same effect. And I believe CMMI came out with the same result and the same feedback because of the conflicts with a population health approach. If, if you're operating in a population health environment, then you're naturally doing all of those things that you would consider in a chronic care bundle. But you have the overlap of these payment mechanisms in a value-based arrangement. So how do you reconcile the economics that I'm in a value-based agreement with payer ABCD, and, and now they want a bundle for orthopedics or a bundle for a chronic condition, the financial reconciliation on that is nearly impossible. And most of them can't do it. So you have to ask the question of what drives the greatest, what has the potential to drive the greatest amount of value? What are you going to take risk in? And how are you going to carve apart and reconcile all of those disparate risk aspects of any particular relationship? And I think the easiest place to do this is in the procedure space and then also having a value-based population health structure. Lisa and I have, have talked about this a lot from an employer's perspective. The right bundle is really helpful to them. Why? Because all employers pay for high volume services, knees and hips and shoulders and babies and cabbages and things of this nature. And a big problem for all employers is the variation in cost and quality for these things, quality being a big one. So we've got data here in Connecticut on a big employer where they're paying $22,500 for a knee, but then they're also paying $50,000 for the always existing complication and infection. So the right bundle can give a level of predictability that employers really, really want and need. Why? Because if they're self-funding their plans and they're buying stop loss, they don't want to be hitting their stop loss corridor. The predictability is a great thing. 
the problem is that there's been a tremendous amount of variability between bundlers as to what the bundle looks like. So the standardization of bundles is really important. I would encourage your, your listeners. I, I particularly like the paces.org website that gives a rubric for usable bundles in the marketplace. We'll tell you also just in our own Connecticut marketplace, Signify Health, which is uh, based here, has been providing bundle services to the state of Connecticut, but last Friday announced that they're getting out of bundle, out of Medicare bundles, and it sounds like potentially uh, commercial bundles as well because there's not enough margin. There are some really good bundlers around the country, Carum Health out of California, a Carent out of Maryland do really nice job. What what's different about these? So Carum in particular looks at the population of surgeons, let's say on an MSK bundle, and they must earn into quality and outcomes to be part of that bundle. A Carent, which uh, comes out of Johns Hopkins, all of their bundles are transparently priced, over 200 bundles. So this gives the employers the type of predictability that they need. So what's the problem? The standardization of what is included in the bundle. We'll give another example, Wildflower Health does maternity bundles. It includes the baby as part of the episode of care as well to give predictability on, on both the cost and the quality. This type of standardization is really critical for employers to want to adopt this and get the predictability that they need. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Jeff that there, there are clearly opportunities to offer this to the employer market. I'd, I'd like to call out just one other issue associated with this type of payment mechanism they're not easy to administer. They're not easy to administer on the payer side, and they're really, really hard to administer on the provider side. And uh, the piece that's critical to the ability to manage a bundle is understanding not only every aspect of the cost within the bundle, but the variation between the providers that provide the service and their costs within the bundle. And, and that's not easily tracked through our healthcare system today. When you look at the way a bundle's delivered, you got the professional side, you have, you have the hospital side, you may have anesthesia, you may have post-acute, you may have, you know, all of those are paid differently. They're paid through different providers, through different tax IDs, and all of that needs to be consolidated in a way to understand how to appropriately price a bundle, how to manage the bundle, and how to achieve the outcomes associated with the bundle. So, you know, without really understanding that entire perspective, it's not something, you know, I would say just like jump right into it. It's, it's an easy thing to do. And, you know, let's just offer a bundle. Uh, it takes a lot of work to administer this. It takes a lot of work on the, on the clinical side for providers to change their patterns of clinical delivery and the attention to these episodes of care in order to be able to deliver the results that are promised with bundles. Lisa, Jeff, I want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation and so much depth and, and uh, insights from both of you. And you're both exemplary leaders. And, and at, you know, at this point in the movement to value, the race to value, leadership is really needed to turn the tide, to remake our health system in ways that are more consistent 
with the welfare of patients and purchasers. And I'm hoping you can provide a, a brief parting thought on how collaborative networks will serve as the next evolution in healthcare to catalyze the seismic shift to value. Will this collaboration towards value also address the societal needs for equity as well? I, I believe there's no other way than collaboration. When you look at our ecosystem, we have expertise in many areas uh, that are required for patients to receive optimal health. And it's, I think it's, it's not appropriate to think that that can all be delivered by one entity or you know, one system. It requires collaboration in order to do that. If we're really talking about eliminating inequities in our system, that delivery of care also needs partnerships with community-based organizations and others that can help mitigate the adverse impacts of the conditions that our patients are living in. So there needs to be a connection between the social aspects of care and the medical aspects of care for all of us to be successful and to achieve the optimal patient outcomes. So if anything, it stresses partnership, collaboration, and community. I couldn't agree more with Lisa's comments. Both of us are grandparents. Uh, it's the best job I've ever had. And you know, when we look at how much of our gross domestic product is consumed by healthcare, which is sick care, quite frankly, it, it's hurting us. It's hurting us as a country. It's hurting our outcomes. We don't have a good system. We must collaborate. We must use innovation appropriately to democratize access to care and give horizontal integrated care that produces great outcomes. It is available. Uh, having worked, again, in every aspect of the healthcare ecosystem, we simply must align the incentives appropriately. And that is starting to occur. The transparency that we're getting that's being legislated, even the social effects of the great resignation, people are rethinking who they want to be, what they want to be. All of these things are, are pretty much coming together at this point. I hate to use uh, this term, but it's it really is the perfect storm. And I think both Lisa and I are convinced that we are going to get a good result, that things are happening around us. Well, I'm confident it will with the leadership of you both, Lisa and Jeff. I mean, you're doing such great work in transforming the healthcare ecosystem in the state of Connecticut and beyond. It's been just an absolute pleasure spending time with you today, talking about this move to value, which is such an important movement within our country. Thanks so much for being with us today here at the Race to Value. Thanks for having us. Thanks, sir. It's been a pleasure.